Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you wherever we are, that we can lift our voices together, sing your praise, declare your truth to ourselves and to one another. Lord, we pray that as we look in your word, that you would speak to us, that you would show us what it means to love you and to follow you more today as the light of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a theory for one reason we have a hard time shaping our lives around eternity. It's not just that we love the things of this world too much, though we may. And it's not just that the things of God are unattractive to us, though they may be. I have a feeling that, that part of the problem is much simpler. That we can't picture eternity properly and accurately. Because we have some really strange, shallow, confusing, and narrow ideas about heaven. Floating around on clouds, wearing boring white outfits, strumming mindlessly away on harps, or droning on in a never-ending choir, permanently stationed in one spot, or for not there, wandering around aimlessly in empty mansions. No wonder we have a really hard time looking forward to heaven as much as we should. Because these are our wrong ideas of it. Now ask yourself, what are you looking forward to about heaven? If you are, are your anticipations accurate, biblical? What should we be looking forward to? I think this is one of the reasons that the book of Revelation is in our Bibles. It's revealing realities about eternity to us now because we need them now. We need to set our faith and our hope on something true and solid and sure. And so, Revelation wants to fill our minds with images and, image, and our imaginations with pictures, albeit pictures that likely fall far short of the realities they represent. But it helps us to fix our minds and our hearts on the glory of heaven and on the one on heaven's throne. So, today, let's turn together to Revelation 21, where we see some of these beautiful images We've already seen Jesus return to defeat all enemies, judge all people, and reign as king. And last Sunday, if you were with us, we saw the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And even in that idea, we see that heaven is more than just an extra-dimensional, ethereal soul world. Part of heaven... Our eternal home is on a new earth, a glorified earth, but still, it's both spiritual and physical. We'll experience it as full, embodied, resurrected persons. And it's 
an entire world and universe to live in, explore, work in, rule over, and enjoy. Last week we saw that this new creation will reunite us with God's person and presence. And and that's going to mark the end of everything sad about this world now. That we'll be given God's life and his love and that the trustworthy and true one will protect that life from everything destructive. But Revelation isn't done trying to show us the glorious future in store for God's people. And so pick it up in verse 9. It says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, if you were following along back in chapter 17, something eerily similar happened there. An angel, one of the angels of judgment, comes over and speaks with John, saying, Come, I will show you something, and then proceeds to take him to see a woman out in nature. But in chapter 17, it was the prostitute, Babylon, in the wilderness. Here in chapter 21, it's the bride, Jerusalem on a mountain. And the contrast couldn't be more intentional and obvious says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, we talked a bit about this holy, heavenly city of New Jerusalem last week. Remember that this city is the city of God, which contrasts with all our man-made cities And remember that this city likely represents both a people and a place. This is the the final destination for God's people in God's presence. Now, it's totally normal for apocalyptic literature like Revelation to mix and match metaphors like this. So it it can say that it can call us the bride of the Lamb in chapter 19 and a city the bride in chapter 21. I once heard Don Carson advise husbands to never tell your wife you look like a city. But it's, it's fine to do here because this city is more than just a city and the bride is more than just a bride. They're images and neither image does full justice to what is being revealed. But notice the bride is also called the wife of the lamb here. The marriage has taken place. God's people are now united to Christ, their husband, for all eternity. Which is especially wonderful when you consider how unfaithful God's people have been to God over the ages. That'll no longer be the case here. I think the the major goal of today's passage is to captivate us with the glory of heaven. Sadly, a lot of that glory often gets obscured by confusing details to us. So we want to cut through that today, find some clarity. 
But the first section that we saw last week of chapter 21 talked about the whole new heavens and new earth being created. Here, John zooms his camera in on on what is coming down from heaven. The heavenly city of New Jerusalem in its awesome glory, our future home. And the big idea, the most important thing I think we need to see here is that the glory of heaven comes from the glory of God. Okay, the glory of heaven, we're going to see dramatically here, comes from nothing less than the glory of God. It says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. Now when he says, I, He carried me away to a mountain, mountains hold a very high significance, pun intended, in Scripture. From Mount Ararat, to Mount Moriah, to Mount Sinai, to Mount Zion, to Calvary, and the Mount of Olives, and many more. Here, John gets his own mountaintop experience from a a great, high, really enormous mountain. And he gets to watch heaven itself descend glorious splendor to the earth. And why is this so glorious? Because it comes from God, glowing with the glory of God. It says, he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, in a jas- like a jasper, clear as crystal. A glory is a word we like to toss around a lot as Christians. But what does it actually mean? What is the glory of God? Here's one definition. It says, God's glory is the revelation of God's being, nature, and presence to mankind. The revelation of God's being, nature, and presence to mankind. Essentially, the glory of God is a display or a reflection of who he is. Here in Revelation 21, it's described as a radiance. A radiance. Having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The best way I could think to illustrate this is the light that we see from the sun. And the sun, in it by nature, radiates light to everything in its range. The light can be hidden or blocked at times, but the sun never stops shining. If you hold up a a prism or even like a a hose's water spray, you can refract the sunlight so that it appears as a rainbow of different colors. Similarly, God can't help but radiate his glory. Again, his glory could also be hidden at times by various things such as sin in our lives. But God's glory never stops shining out. He's always revealing himself. We can study different aspects of his glory, like his holiness or his love or his power. And that's kind of like holding a prism up to who he is. God's glory is the whole spectrum of colors. The manifestation of himself to us. Now, taking that analogy one step further, a city having the glory of God would be like the moon. 
Does the moon produce any light of its own? No. The moon is just a, a huge, dull, gray rock. But when a full moon rises above the horizon, it can be a spectacular sight. How? Because it's reflecting the radiance of the sun. The sun is, even when it's dark here, the sun is still shining on the moon. And as it's basking in the sun's presence, the moon can't help but shine. Likewise, this heavenly city of New Jerusalem is coming from God's presence. And therefore, it can't help but radiate God's resplendent glory. And John's trying to do his best to describe it in terms that his readers would understand. When he says it's, its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It, it shimmered like a most rare jewel, one that you would hardly ever see. And he adds that it's like a jasper. Now, we aren't totally sure what he meant by jasper in that time. We aren't sure what it looks like, though it was likely an opaque kind of Chalcedony, if that helps you. Some suggest this looks like geodes. If you see the rocks that are split in half in guest shops all over the place with really beautiful crystals inside, that idea. Others suggest the best parallel is diamonds. Maybe picture that in your mind here. When John says that it was clear as crystal, it more likely means sparkling like crystal. That's the idea, that, that heaven glistens and sparkles and shimmers with the glory of God. And what we should be most excited about experiencing in heaven is the very glory of God. So, what does this glory of God look like in heaven? What does it consist of? What do we see? I think that there are at least five different aspects of God's glory that we're going to see in this passage. Five or more different colors of the rainbow, if you will, of God's glory. The first one might surprise you. The glory of heaven comes from the glory of God, including his people. God's redeemed people are an expression of his glory. And that'll be clear in heaven. I get this from the symbolism literally etched into the city's features. Verse 12, he continues. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So the wall has 12 gates, whereas most ancient cities only had a few. So this is a really big city. This also stresses that there will be abundant access to the city, many entrances. But why do you suppose the names of the 12 tribes of Israel would be inscribed on each gate? The idea, I believe, is that the city is essentially built out of God's people. The people of Israel were God's chosen people under the Old Covenant, and from them came the law, the prophets, eventually the Messiah. 
So why would they be identified with the gates specifically? Maybe for the same reason Paul says the gospel is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Basically, it was through Israel that God has provided access to the kingdom for all peoples. We enter through that gate. And in case you feel left out as a new covenant believer, don't. Look at verse 14. It says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So if the names of Israel's 12 sons represent the whole people of Israel, the names of Jesus' 12 disciples or apostles represent the whole of the church. By the way, this is not the first time the apostles have been likened to foundations before. In Ephesians 2, we read about how both Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in Christ. And it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's our destiny. This also describes what's going on now. We're being built. But do you get the picture? Like Ephesians 2 describes the construction zone. Revelation 21 describes the finished product. The entire city is built from and constructed from God's people. And this is telling us in a symbolic way that, that God's eternal dwelling place will be us. And that reality should affect how we worship, we're his temple. Should affect how we share the gospel with others if it if its access is through us. And also it if we're gonna be glorified like that one day, if we're gonna actually be part of God's glory shining forth, shouldn't that affect the ways that we pursue lesser glories now? Seeking popularity, praise status, fame, work success, social media cred, likes. Those all pale, don't they? We're, we're already part of something huge. If, if this is God's plans for us, to experience and express his spectacular glory, then what others think of us should become less and less important to us. God's holy city radiates his glory, and we get to be a part of that. The second major expression of God's glory that I think we can notice here is one that we probably more expect to see, though not necessarily in these verses. See, the glory of heaven comes from the glory of God, from his holiness. His holiness. God's glory is revealed in heaven in his holiness. Like we sang, holy, holy, holy. For God to be holy means he is transcendently separate from his creation. 
He's set apart. He's supremely great. He's absolutely pure, and he's infinitely above us. So, how does heaven display God's glory and his holiness? Look at verse 15. It says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And you all go, what? Did you read the right verses, Pastor Matt? Yes, I did. This is the part of the passage that usually both confuses and bores us. What's with the measurements? He, He also measures the wall in verse 17. What's the point? Actually, there's immense significance to this. Let me point out a few things. First, the the city is measured at 12,000 stadia in all directions, which is about the equivalent of 2,400 kilometers. Wait a minute. That's massive. (laughs) That'd be the, the biggest city ever to exist. Just for reference, okay? If Ottawa was the southeast corner of that. The city would stretch west to Montana, north to the Arctic Circle, and then encompass most of Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Nunavut, the entire Hudson Bay, and parts of Northwest Territories, Quebec, Alberta, and at least four U.S. states. Now, it was even bigger to John's original audience as this was about the size of the entire known world. But the actual size isn't as important as the measured number of 12,000. Daryl Johnson explains, 12,000 is a number for completeness and fulfillment. 12 stadia would have been enough to make the point. God's city is 12 by 12 by 12, which perfectly fulfills all of the promises of God. 12,000, 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's huge. It's perfect. It is the holy city, after all. However, even more important than the size and the number is the shape of the city. Verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. Now, this echoes Ezekiel again, when an angel measured Jerusalem for Ezekiel, noting that the width and the length were the same. It's signifying there a perfect restoration for God's people. But here in Revelation, the angel adds a third dimension to his measurements. Did you notice? Halfway through 16. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So the city's height is 12,000 stadia, 2,400 kilometers. You know that planes fly at 10 kilometers? Or that outer space begins at 100 kilometers? So is, is heaven a a skyscraping or a space-scraping city? Maybe, but that's not the point. The point is that the city is a perfect cube. 
Did you know that there is only one other cube in all of Scripture? You know what it is? The Holy of Holies. The most holy place. The sacred innermost sanctuary in the tabernacle or the temple, the place where God's glory dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, the place where only the high priest could go and he only once a year and not without blood to atone for this, his sins and the sins of the people. So you get what Revelation is getting at? Like that the new Jerusalem is the new holy of holies. The entire city is a temple. More than that, the entire city is the most holy place where God will dwell, where people will dwell. We'll have unfettered access to him. And you, my friend, can be welcomed in there. The veil's been torn. And if we have Jesus' blood on us, we are welcomed into the holy of holies. told my wife this week that as I'm studying this passage, the, those two verses that were the most confusing at first became my favorite. So, The glory of heaven comes from God's glory as expressed in his people and his holiness. Next, another feature of his glory that we can clearly see is his beauty. His glory is going to be seen in his beauty, which rubs off on his city. That's the main gist of the next several verses, starting in verse 17 with the ornamental walls. It says, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now we're unsure of whether that's the wall's height or thickness, but it's around 65 meters. Again, the point isn't the measurement, but the symbolism of the 144 cubits. We're familiar with that number, right? 144 12 times 12, 12 tribes times 12 apostles. It's, the, it's a perfect measurement for the holy city of God. Usually, though, city walls in the ancient days were built for protection. That can't be the case here, though, because all enemies are gone. It appears the main functions of these walls are, as one scholar says, beauty and demarcation. Even the walls were meant to radiate God's glory. Look, verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. So the entire wall is built of jasper, the same precious gem as earlier. Remember, picture diamonds. And then the, the city's primary building material is pure gold. Verse 21 goes on to say that the same about the streets of the city. It says the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The city is so precious and beautiful. Gold is used as pavement. However, it's not just any old 24 karat gold. It's so pure, it's clear as glass. That's like Heaven's gold is unlike any gold we've ever seen. Grant Osborne explains that the city and its streets are transparent gold, likely because its own glory is insufficient 
and it can only radiate through its transparency the incomparably greater glory of God himself. You know that God is that beautiful? Reflecting God's beauty is also why the city is decorated the way it is. Look at verse 19. It says, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. We don't know why Revelation uses these 12 jewels in particular. There are theories. But their main purpose is clear. It's to, to radiantly display God's glory. John Stark adds, it says here that the foundations of the walls are jewels. Here's the principle of the New Jerusalem. Beauty is not decorative, but foundational. The whole of heaven... Top to bottom, shimmers and sparkles because God's presence is so manifest there. And if, if jewel-studded foundation stones aren't enough to show this, John then says, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, if the measurements given earlier were literal, a gate would also be 65 meters in diameter, which means those are some gigantic pearls. <laughs> Imagine the oysters, just saying. <laughs> no, but seriously, in John's day, pearls were considered the most luxurious jewel. Remember Jesus' parable about the man who sold all he owned in order to get one pearl. The point is, even the gates, the doors, are unimaginably beautiful and precious. And why? Because God is unimaginably beautiful and precious. Do you desire to see him? To love him? To long to him? To glorify him? I hope so. Because that's where we're headed if we belong to Jesus. Verse 22. The passage shifts from the appearance of the city and its beauty to the conditions in the city. And again, we see that it's glorious. And again, it's because God is there. So, the glory of heaven comes from the glory of God as expressed in his presence. God's glory will be experienced in his personal presence among his people. And we already noted this last week when we heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now John says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That statement is remarkable. The city's temple is the Lord God and the Lamb. Now, the temple is where God's people would go to encounter God. 
Now, for several reasons, John would have fully expected to find a temple in heaven, especially after seeing a heavenly temple several times earlier in Revelation. But now, as he peers into the city, there's no temple there, at least no temple building. Why? Because God himself is there. There's no need for a temple to, to bridge the gap to him. Turns out that the temple, which is a hugely important image and symbol in Scripture, always pointed ahead to God's very presence. N.T. Wright says that when the reality is there, the signpost is no longer necessary. Gerhard Krodel says that the phrase, no temple, stated positive, positively means the whole city is engulfed in the glory of God, radiating in it and from it. The saints no longer stand before God, but live in God, being completely surrounded by God, even as God lives in them. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul said, In him we live and move and have our being. This appears to be the ultimate fulfillment of that reality, that we will experience living in God like never before. Daryl Johnson adds, Nothing exists apart from God. Even in these old broken cities of ours, nothing exists apart from God. In the new city, nothing exists outside of God. All of redeemed reality is somehow encompassed by and enfolded in the triune God. Wow. And if we are always dwelling there in God's presence, think of what that means for worship. Yes, we'll sing in heaven. I'm certain of that. But this implies something even better. If the, if the temple is where people worship and heaven's temple is God himself and God's presence permeates heaven, then our very existence will be worship to God. Whatever we're doing. And we were created to worship and glorify God. So there we will fulfill our greatest purpose. Do not worry about this boring you. This is something to anticipate with every fiber of our being. And not only will God fulfill the need for a temple, he'll fulfill the need for light. Look, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I think this gives us one additional expression of God's glory in this passage, and that's his light. The glory of heaven comes from the glory of God as seen in his light. John talks a lot about God's light throughout the Bible earlier he said that in Jesus, in him, was life, and the life was the light of men. He also quoted Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in yet another place, John wrote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
Now, John sees this reality with his own eyes, and he just marvels. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. R.C. Sproul talks about how we can't even look at the sun when it's partially shadowed by an eclipse. And he asks, if we cannot gaze directly at the sun during an eclipse, how much more severe would be the, brill- the brilliance that literally outshines the sun? The glory of God reaches a magnitude of brightness far beyond that of the sun shining at full strength. Now, what do you use light for in your life? Basically everything, right? You walk into a dark room, first thing you do is try to flick on a light. Or at the least, you use your phone to make sure that you can see where you're going. It's very difficult to do anything without light, which is why being blind can be such a challenge for some of our friends. We use light normally to to read, to cook, to eat, to play, to study, even just to walk around. In other words, we use light to live our lives, which is the same here. Verse 24 says, by its light will the nations walk. It's why Jesus says that anyone who follows him will have the light of life. The light of life. He is the light that enables us to live. He he empowers our existence. John is amazed by the the shining brilliance and luminosity of the holy city. And, And when he figures out where that light comes from, he's astounded. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God provides the light. Jesus is the light. The Lamb is the city's lamp. The crucified, risen, and now glorified Lamb is the source of the light. I wonder, do you follow him? Follow the light of the world. Is he your light even now? Does he light up your path? Do you live your life by what he has illuminated for you in his word? I believe that if you don't follow Jesus yet, you are still in spiritual darkness, shrouded by sin, blinded by the enemy, unable to see clearly or live in a way that pleases God. But even today, you can open your heart to allow Jesus to shine his light into you. And if you have his light, you will never walk in darkness again. I hope you do. In verse 24, we see another shift from present tense to future tense. In other words, John moves from describing what he was seeing then to prophesying about what will happen after this, so throughout eternity. And we'll see that not only does the glory of heaven come from the glory of God, but the glory of heaven will eternally increase for the glory of God. 
The glory of heaven will internally, eternally increase for the glory of God. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. They will, they will, they will do this. Now, we don't know exactly how nations, rulers, or governments will work then. But in some sense, even as heaven is united to earth and God reigns over the earth as king over all, there are still comings and goings from the new Jerusalem. There are still nations, a a diversity of different peoples and nationalities. There are still sub-rulers on earth, perhaps again talking about us as God's people reigning with him, having dominion over the earth. But whatever the case, there is still clearly civilization, creativity, cultures. Now, these things have been corrupted by evil in many ways in our present world. But here, they'll be purified and produced solely for the glory of God. And people from all nations, including us, will get to parade the glories of our own redeemed cultural heritages into God's city. It says they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations to the praise of God. Now, do you get the, the purpose of all this? Yeah, people are bringing their glory into the holy city. Why? Isn't the, the city glorious enough as it is? Sure. But God is worthy of even more. That's the point. God is worthy of even more. All our respective glories will serve to continually increase the glory of the holy city and thus further magnify the glory of God. We get to play a part in this. This is a fulfillment of so much of what biblical prophets looked forward to. The nations streaming from all over the world to Zion to worship God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of global missions work. Also, notice how this goes so against our lame ideas about heaven. Okay, we will be involved in building civilizations and cultures to the glory of God. Like work will be perfectly enjoyable because the curse is now gone. But work we shall do. Like, we won't just laze around the mansion forever. God will undoubtedly give us wonderful jobs and missions and endeavors. And then we'll get to show off our work with pure motives for his glory. Verse 25 mentions in passing how the gates will never be shut in the New Jerusalem. In ancient times, city gates were closed every night to protect the city from dangers. But in heaven, gates won't need to be closed because there are no dangers. There are no night dangers. There won't even be night, it says. And thus, the holy city is perfectly secure. It also shows the city is an open city for people to come and go. Everyone is now welcome. Well, not quite everyone. Everyone still present in the new heavens and new earth is welcome anytime. 
but not necessarily everyone hearing these words right now. Look at the last verse here. It says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is part warning to those who are unclean and haven't been cleansed by Jesus. Those who live lifestyles that are detestable or false in God's sight. But this is also meant to be an encouragement to God's people who were oppressed that the holiest of holies shall never be defiled. Forever. Joshua Ryan Butler explains, while the city's posture is one of welcoming embrace, sin and her allies are never allowed to enter inside the city gates. Because God's city embodies his shalom for the world, and because sin by its very nature wages war on God's shalom, it is no longer allowed to invade his kingdom. Evil is cast outside the city. Now, even if that might be super alarming news to some, can you see how overall this is really good news? Isaiah 11 quotes the Lord, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so, even if you see yourself as one of the unclean ones who should be cast out of the city, rejoice again today that there is a Lamb's book of life. And not because of anything you deserve, your name can still be written in it. The Lamb of God was slain for you in your place so you could receive some of His place. The honor and glory that he's due to receive for all eternity. He shares it with us. Or as Tim Keller has put it aptly for us today, Jesus lost the city that was so we could become citizens of the city to come. He lost Jerusalem so that we gain the new city, the new Jerusalem. This future can be our reality because of Jesus and what he's done. So may we rejoice in him today, even from our current broken city, as we look forward to the day that we will walk by the light of his glory in the holy city. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Bring this to pass, and soon we long for it. And for those who don't long for it, I pray that you would stir that longing in our souls. Help us to transfix our heart's attention and affections. Lord, we, we want to see your glory. Show us your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.